0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
1: You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world.
2: Learn how to eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran.
3: Spike Lee said, I tend to favor films that have multiple plots and storylines, multiple characters and ensemble pieces. Well, you know... I am agreeing with Mr. Lee on that, and I'm thinking of it in terms of books as well as films. I love the idea of reading something that has input from different minds and different voices, and that's what we're going to be talking about today as we look at Vegan Voices, Essays by Inspiring Changemakers. Hi, everybody. I am Victoria Moran, your host for the Main Street Vegan Podcast. It is a pleasure to have you with us today, where we have an ensemble of guests, as well as talking about this wonderful ensemble book. We're going to be speaking with the editor of this wonderful new book, Vegan Voices, Dr. Joanne Kong. And then we will be hearing from one of the contributors to the book, Jean Bauer. You know Jean Bauer is Co founder and director of Farm Sanctuary. And a little bit later, we will be joined by Martin Rowe, who is the publisher of this wonderful book and so many others through Lantern Publishing and Media. And I guess it's really a four-parter today because I'm also part of this book, having contributed an essay and the foreword. So let me first tell you a little bit about Dr. Joanne Kong. She speaks around the world as a vegan advocate, and she's the author of If You Ever Loved an Animal, Go Vegan. She has been praised for her TED Talk, The Power of Plant-Based Eating, and the video An Urgent Plea for Healing. Cherish all animals. Dr. Kong is a classical pianist, a writer, a speaker, and a faculty member and sustainability advisor at the University of Richmond in Virginia. Welcome, Dr. Joanne Kong. Hi,
4: Victoria. So great to be here. And we just had our book launch this past weekend. Your keynote was beautiful and amazing. And I want to thank you for everything that you do as a part
3: of Vegan Voices. Oh, that's so kind. You know, there's something about book launches that just make me happy. You know, some people say that when a baby is born, that's a sign that God thinks the world should go on. I feel a little bit like that when a new book comes out, especially a good one like this. So we did have lots of fun. You guys were up at Plant City, which is kind of a vegan food court in Providence, Rhode Island. Yes. It's
4: actually uh, the world's first vegan food hall and marketplace. So there are four restaurants there, a little store, a terrific vibe. The food was fantastic. People were just having a great time.
3: Oh, that's so cool. And will we be able to watch that? Is it online? Uh, The whole launch was recorded by our launch
4: producer. So we will be getting that out and- and more and more people can see what happened during the virtual launch
3: yeah well get me that url and we will put it on our our show notes at mainstreetvegan.net so first joanne just so people know who you are i mean i've heard you play the piano and most people who can play the piano the way that you do would not be doing all these other things you've got this incredible talent you'd be doing that but you're a renaissance woman you're doing everything tell us about you Yeah, so it's really interesting, um, kind of to
4: summarize my vegan path. I was a longtime vegetarian, and then about eight years became fully vegan. But maybe it was just at the point where I felt that after so many years of being a public performer and doing concerts and that sort of thing, I felt that I had to take my educating activity a step further and do something that would benefit the world at a much larger scale. Um, and one of my students actually approached me and said gee what do you do to stay so healthy you should really let other people know and that's kind of how it all started and I guess it makes sense as a college professor that then what I did was started giving some talks on campus and locally and then it just grew from there and then in terms of the book uh, which was roughly a year in the making the interesting thing is there was one morning last summer where I don't know if you ever have these insights that come into your head first thing in the morning kind of thing. Um, It's a
3: wonderful time for insights.
4: Absolutely. But I woke up one morning and the words vegan voices were real loud in my head. So it was kind of like, I feel like it was my higher self or my higher consciousness saying, hey, this is something you need to do. So that's really how it all started.
3: That's so wonderful. So did you get your publisher first, or did you start thinking about who was going to contribute essays? Walk us through that. Yeah,
4: I started thinking about who would uh, be wonderful to contribute essays. I reached out to Lantern. And at first, I think the reply, if I'm correct, Martin, was something like, oh, 50 writers. That's a lot of writers. Um, So we actually grouped the essays into six different chapters. And I think it's just a tremendous way to give readers who are veg curious an insight into what vegan, veganism is, that it's, it's not just about diet, it's about finding the right individual path for, for as, as compassionate and kind and sustainable a life that we can create for ourselves and the planet and, of course, for the animals so i think that the multi messaging of the book i think is its most powerful aspect that it can reach lots of different readers in many different
3: ways and your sections are really interesting because i think so many people say okay animals health environment all extremely important extraordinarily important but you have six sections our kindred animals around the globe activism Body and Spirit, The Arts, and A New Frontier, which is fascinating. So tell me how you came up with the categories. Did you get the essays and then group them into categories, or did you have the categories and offer those to the writers? It was actually a little bit of both. And as,
4: as more and more of the essays came in, they tended to fall under certain groupings although all the writers do have some themes in common. Um, One of them obviously is compassion for our kindred animals. Um, Another one is is just the idea of seeing veganism within a broader context, uh, within a broader context of how do we create a kinder society how do we improve the sustainability of our planet and the environment all the writers touch upon those similar kind of themes and interestingly enough another thing that a lot of the writers talk about is how oh i wish i had gone vegan sooner and of course i put myself in that category too and so many international writers. So that's why I decided to have a section of the book called Around the Globe to point out that veganism, it's, it's growing all around the world. And those uh, listeners who watched the virtual launch had an opportunity to hear some of those writers from around the world.
3: Yeah, that was wonderful. I know you've got somebody from Israel, somebody from the Netherlands, somebody from Denmark.
4: Yeah, lots lots of writers, Um, Germany, Australia, New Zealand, you mentioned Israel, Brazil, Canada, Norway, Japan. This coming summer, I'm hoping to actually go on a two week tour of Norway with Elin Gunderson, who wrote the essay on veganism in Norway, because she and her husband are putting together the first vegan grocery store chain in Norway. So we're thinking of going around to all the major cities in Norway, promoting what they're doing, and vegan voices at the same time.
3: Oh, that's thrilling. I love all these things that are happening everywhere. And some amazing things have been happening for quite a while, which uh, brings me to uh, the time to introduce our next guest, Jean Bauer. As co-founder of Farm Sanctuary, uh, Gene just celebrated Farm Sanctuary's 35th anniversary, and he's also a best-selling author. Time Magazine called him the conscience of the food movement, and I call him a really wonderful human being, and I'm so grateful to be on Earth at the same time as Gene Bauer. Welcome, Gene. You are muted.
2: It's wonderful to be with you thanks uh, for having me on and for having my voice come on too i appreciate it
3: well now gene i noticed that your essay i would just assume like well gene's essay will be in our kindred animals but it's in a new future it's called in a post meat economy people not corporations thrive tell us about that economy
2: well, you know, we have kind of grown up in this world where extraction, exploitation, injustice is sort of normalized in animal agriculture, where animals are seen as commodities, where workers are seen as commodities, where the earth is seen as a commodity. And many of us sort of unwittingly participate in this by buying these products and by participating in these systems, uh, including belief systems. And so, In addition to rescuing animals as we have done at Farm Sanctuary, I'm increasingly feeling that systemic change is critical if we're going to create a more compassionate world. And so I've been putting a lot of time and energy into structural assessments lately and looking at ways to start, for example, taking the billions of dollars that is spent every year by the US Department of Agriculture away from factory farming and starting to shift that towards a community-centered, plant-based food system. Uh, The only reason animal agriculture continues the way it does, or or one of the main reasons, is that it is so significantly supported by government programs. And there was a report that came out a couple of years ago, for example, talking about dairy industry income. And this report found that 73% of dairy industry income came from government programs. Now that is not a sustainable system. And the reason that we have meat and uh, and dairy and eggs as cheap as they are in grocery stores and as widely available as they are through our distribution channels is because of an infrastructure. And a big part of that is government support and subsidies. So we need to start shifting that, making plant-based foods more accessible, more affordable, more uh, available in many different communities. And I think ultimately most people would rather not support unnecessary slaughter or unnecessary animal cruelty. I think most people would rather eat food that is nourishing instead of food that makes them sick and would rather support a food system that uh, is sustainable and isn't destroying the planet the way our current system is. So this really, I think, is a win-win-win. It ties into people's own interests, uh, but we need to have the systems and the structures to make it more accessible. So So changing hearts and minds is one thing, changing systems and structures is connected to it and i think they're both very important.
3: So what do we do? I know you're an expert on the changing hearts and minds. Is there something that individuals can do in this other aspect?
2: Well, i think you know number 1 is through personal choices and deciding to eat plants instead of animals, but in addition to that, supporting local farmers as much as possible, going to farmers markets, you know because even in the in the vegan plant-based food space there are forms of worker exploitation, for example, with with people picking lettuce in the fields who are not treated very well. So supporting local farmers, farmers markets, uh, a more just and compassionate food system with our dollars, but also getting involved in policy and getting to know who our elected officials are, letting them know our concerns, writing to government officials who might have some authority to make changes and just getting involved. Uh, democracy is a participatory sport and unless we show up uh, as citizens, as well as, as consumers, uh, you know, it's gonna be hard to create the changes we're, we're talking about. But on the business side, you could also get involved with community supported agriculture. That's another form of food production that is more connected between the producer and the consumer. And it's one that also, when you're closer to the source of your food, there is more transparency and more accountability, which is very important. One of the things that factory farming thrives upon is a lack of transparency and and increasingly now greenwashing because as consumers have learned about the abuses of factory farming, many people say they don't want to participate. So animal agriculture now is starting to market things and to make them sound better than they are and to put programs in place. And you know, for example, right now, the, uh, there's a lot of concern about the climate crisis and that's very appropriate. And unfortunately though, agribusiness will be using that crisis to actually get more government money to further entrench their own system. And, and an example of this is this idea of methane digesters, which take manure lagoons and factory farming waste And the idea is to turn that into energy and to save on greenhouse gas emissions. So on the surface, that sounds good, but when you step back and look at the whole system, only 10% of the greenhouse gas emissions from that manure lagoon or from that system come from the manure lagoon. Most, like 90% of the emissions come before the manure lagoon. So we need to go upstream and prevent that manure lagoon in the first place, and investing hundreds of millions of dollars as we have in these manure lagoons for a methane digester is just a bad expenditure of, of public monies and it also then green washes this idea that the industry is creating green, green energy when in fact it's created enormous problems before even getting to that point uh, but they're going to use it to greenwash and say that they're doing these good things uh, when in fact uh, they're doing many harmful things in terms of uh, contributing to the climate crisis so You know that's an example of a systemic support uh, that will be sold as a a, an environmentally friendly idea. So this is an industry that extracts the lives of animals. It takes you know their milk from cows, eggs from chickens, and it even takes the identities of, of farmers who are suffering, small farmers, to get money that usually goes to big farmers. So it's an extractive industry, and now they're trying to extract government money to address the climate crisis. But unfortunately, that government money will further entrench this factory farming system. So this is why we need to start shifting these billions of dollars of government subsidies away from that and create a situation where the real cost is paid and where the public is not continuing to underwrite this extractive, inefficient, and abusive system.
3: Fascinating. You know, I was going to wait until after the break to bring on our third guest, Martin Rowe, but because you're talking about the environmental impacts of of animal agriculture, I just have to bring him on now because he is certainly... I would say a master teacher in my life on this topic. Uh, Martin Rowe is the founder and director of Lantern uh, Publishing and Media. He's born in the UK, educated at Oxford. He's an author in his own right. And the books that he publishes change the world. You know, that word curated is used so much these days. But I think of Lantern books as not just being published, they're curated, they're selected, they're nurtured. They're, they're molded so that they really do the job of changing the world. Uh, Martin is also a fellow at Brighter Green, an environmental action tank. And I am very proud to say that he teaches uh, a class for us at Main Street Vegan Academy on looking at animal agriculture and the environment in a global way. Welcome, Martin Rowe.
1: Well, thank you, uh, Victoria, for that extremely generous uh, introduction. I'm happy to be here, happy to see my old friend, Jean uh, and uh, my new friend, Joanne, so.
3: And did I say that you're an expert on baseball and cricket?
1: Well, I'm more the cricket guy. I wrote a, <laughs> co-wrote a book with uh, my friend, Evander Lomke, who is a very great baseball aficionado, but we have had many long conversations about the mutual commonalities and divergencies of uh, baseball and cricket. Yeah. Wow. Well,
3: We talked about Joanne as a renaissance person. You are too. Saving the world, changing the world for animals and um, being an expert on the sports that have bats and what do they call it in cricket?
1: Well, they have balls. Yes, as well. So yeah, <laughs> bats okay. and wickets and pitches and stumps. Yes. Well, yeah. If you what want to rapidly, I'll <laughs> tell you about cricket. Uh,
3: so, Martin, can you just follow up a little bit on what Jean was talking about? What are we looking at in the environmental sense and what can we do today?
1: Well, I, I think Jean is absolutely, well, we've got two interesting pathways here. I mean, Vegan Voices is essentially about personal change, obviously being essays from individuals who have made the commitment to go vegan and speaking directly to readers, which of course is a very intimate and uh, singular experience. Reading a book, an author writing and speaking in your ear, as it were, is a very personal uh, experience. And so therefore we're talking about personal change, but is also right that we need institutional and uh, policy change, which is essentially what Bright Green, the organization that you mentioned that I'm affiliated with, works on. And, and what's interesting is that both things are happening simultaneously the entrenchment of globalized industrialized farming practices and governments doubling down on their commitments to extractive fossil fuel based technologies, including intensive animal agriculture and an emergence of a global uh, movement often led by young people to demand the ending of that system of subsidizing uh, multinational corporations and governments either directly or indirectly not paying for the costs of that food for that to end because right now there is uh, a massive crisis uh, that shows currently no sign of abating that would uh, effectively lead to civilization ending climate change by the end of the century so just as an example of that uh, yesterday the natural history museum produced a report about the biodiversity crisis in the world in which it indicated that currently 75% of existing biodiversity remains, 90 plus percent would be considered the safe limit for biodiversity. And they made the very valuable point that biodiversity is not just nice things in nature, it's not just being able to walk in woods and forests and go on and, and drink clean water, but it is actually about the entire infrastructure and ecosystems upon which all our existence depends. So that was a crucial thing that happened yesterday. Simultaneously, yesterday, 30 countries, including the United States and the EU, or 30 organi- uh, regional areas, the United States and the EU and others, made a commitment to center methane reduction as a fundamental goal, stemming out of the climate accords that may follow from the Glasgow COP summit that's coming up next month. And as we all know, methane is an extremely intensive greenhouse gas, over 30 times. More greenhouse gas intensive than carbon dioxide, but lasts less long in the atmosphere, which means it would be an extremely good thing to deal with now as a means of buying us some time to handle carbon dioxide. One of the central creators, as Gene indicated, of methane uh, is enteric fermentation because of uh, um, the growing of the dairy cows, uh, cows, sheep, and goats, uh, etc. So by making that commitment, they're recognizing that animal agriculture, especially of of those animals that use enteric fermentation has to end. So that is a major commitment. Yes, China and Russia and India and Brazil have not signed on yet, but that's extra pressure. And that is uh, is good news. Uh, That happened yesterday. So right now we're seeing the emergence of policy change, but it is going to take some time.
3: So in the meantime, we get to be vegan voices. I wanted to ask you, with all, all of this wonderful information from, from Jean and Martin, well, terrible information, wonderful potential, about the people that you chose for the book. You've got all different ages, and I know some of the people who have written in here are very, very young, and they have a lot of future to look forward to. So, Joanne, when you were choosing your writers, was that something you were thinking about? I wanted to really get
4: a diversity of writers in terms of the primarily the different kinds of experiences that people have had. Um, I in two thousand and eighteen did a three week tour of India where I was speaking about veganism and doing a lot of public events, and I also did some combination events where I was promoting veganism and performing music also and Um, In Pune, India, I met Shreda Bourgankar, who at that time, she was only 17, and she is like a rising star in terms of activists in India, and she's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, she organized an Anonymous for the Voiceless event and, and other direct action kinds of events, and she is so dedicated to speaking up for the animals. So I knew that I wanted to have her in the book. A lot of these activists I've, I've met at conferences or at VegFest. I think I met you, Victoria, for the first time
3: at Summerfest, right? I um, remember. I, we, yeah. we were in that kind of student union area. Yeah. And I was starstruck right. because I knew you were the pianist. Oh. <laughs> um, and some of the, the amazing
4: writers that do so much educating, whether it's online or speaking, such as Emily Moran Barwick, Mary Fennelli, who created Fish Feel, the first organization dedicated to to speaking out for fish. I knew I wanted to have sanctuary owners, so I included Rebecca Moore, who has the Institute for Animal Happiness in Woodstock, New York, and also Pete and Kit Jagoda. I also wanted to include people who are at the forefront, as Jean was talking about, of of recreating, redefining what businesses and enterprises will be doing in the future. So I chose Brenda Morris, who's here in Richmond, who has a business on humane investing. Also Abe Rangan, who he's amazing. He's only in his twenties and in India, he and his mom founded initially out of their kitchen, Good Milk, which provides plant-based products all around the Bangalore region in India. And he's doing phenomenal things, has had million dollar investors contacting him. Also, from a spiritual side, for me, almost the most powerful essay in the book was from Gwenna Hunter,
3: and she talks about
4: her spiritual connection to animals.
3: Oh, I love listening to Gwenna Hunter talk about her spiritual life. I've had her on the show. She's also been a guest on the Compassion Consortium. She is a spiritual and spirited woman. And we're going to be back with more of this spirited conversation right after these messages from Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Stay with us.
0: Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
2: Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran.
3: Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed those messages. I always love listening to what Unity Online Radio has to say about things. It kind of gives me that little moment of pause So if you're somebody who fast forwards through that, maybe you want to treat yourself to it one of these days. So for anybody who's new, I invite you to visit MainStreetVegan.net where you will find out everything that I'm about. You'll also see the show notes there and you'll have the URLs to find out more about all three of our guests and about this wonderful, wonderful book. Vegan Voices, which you can get directly from Lantern Publishing and Media or from Amazon or wherever books are sold. I also want to uh, invite you, if you're interested, to check out CompassionConsortium.org, and that's consortium that's spelled like consortium. Ever since having this, there have been all kinds of conversations about the preferred pronunciation, so I think it can go either way but the Compassion Consortium is a spiritual home or second home for people who care about animals and the planet. We meet the fourth Sunday of every month for a spiritual service at four in the afternoon, U.S. Eastern Time. So our next service will be October 24th, and our special guest will be Reverend Russell Elevin, who heads up the animal chaplaincy program for the Unitarian Universalist Animal Ministries. You can check that out. And we do some in between things too, like we've got a book and film club. And in December, December 7th to be exact, some people you know are going to be in that, like Dr. Joanne Kong and Jean Bauer. So do check it out. And also, when you're over there at mainstreetvegan.net, think about Main Street Vegan Academy. Bringing your vegan outreach and activism to the next level, getting yourself certified as a vegan lifestyle coach and educator. We would love to have you as part of the family. And speaking of families, we do have the Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners Group on Facebook. And over there, you can tell me what you want to. Here on this program, you can recommend guests. You can say what you like and what you don't. And you also get to be part of some wonderful giveaways. And this very week, we are doing a giveaway of the Vegan Voices book. So do join the Main Street Vegan Podcast listeners group and be part of all that. So now I am back with Dr. Joanne Kong, editor of Vegan Voices Essays by Inspiring Change Makers, one of the contributors to the book, Jean Bauer, co-founder of Farm Sanctuary and the book's publisher, Martin Rowe of Lantern Publishing and Media. So Joanne, just as we went to the break, you were talking about A broader view of of how we can revitalize our consciousness. What do you mean by that?
4: Yes, when I reflect upon what the vegan movement is all about, and also the idea of unity, um, we've arrived at a point, and I think that this has been spurred on in part by the coronavirus pandemic, which I think has really provided us with a wake up call and a point of cultural inflection whether humanity seizes that moment and moves in a new positive upward direction is still to be seen but i think it's it's like we've been brought to this point where we can create a new identity where we have an increased sense and awareness that we truly are connected to every other living being and plant and nature that we are not separate things we cannot act as a separate species and hope to survive so i call this compassionate oneness and it's about the idea that if we bring harm to others what will happen with that energy is ultimately it comes back to us and harms us so i think that's why going vegan and and making all of these institutional structural changes that Jean has talked about. It's all part of that broader idea of redefining that whole idea of relationship, how we relate to others around us. Um, And of course, the challenge is that the consumption and exploitation of animals is so deeply ingrained in culture people find a sense of security, whether it's in family customs, the way they grew up. Most people will say, no, I was not born vegan. Um, So we're fighting against that inertia of what seems to be so natural and normal. So it's about creating that new kind of awareness. I'm sure a lot of you know the writer Jim Mason, and he describes this whole thing of of the normalcy of exploiting animals as a kind of self-anesthetization that culture has grown to just numb itself from the horrific cruelty that's being uh, done upon these innocent beings. So it's about establishing that new conscious awareness. It's about creating a new paradigm for health, shifting the focus from primarily treating disease to one of prevention and of course we're seeing so many positive signs with all the tremendous plant-based doctors out there the uh, the cooking programs and certification and and just interest in in plant-based nutrition and cooking all around the world we also have to create a new view of the planet where we protect the planet we are not utilizers of the planet the planet is not here for us to use we are here to protect it because then it will protect us. So it's, it's about rising above that, that mindset where society has been driven by profit, the idea that we must endlessly become more and more industrialized and create more and produce more and really come to the core of, of what it means to live in harmony with other beings and the planet. So those are some of the things that, that I think a lot about.
3: It's interesting that you talked about how society has been so run by profit when your publisher recently <laughs> became a nonprofit. Do you want to tell us about that, Martin?
1: Uh, we did become a nonprofit, yes. So people may know of our previous iteration as Lantern Books. Uh, and in 20, uh, January 2020, uh, a new colleague and I, Brian Normoyle, and I uh, established Lantern Publishing and Media as its successor as a nonprofit. And, you know, there are reasons for that, which are pretty straightforward, which is people can now give us money in addition to buying our books uh, to help us in our mission. We're also open, of course, to philanthropy. But ultimately, probably more significantly, is that allows us to move into some more formal relationships with other nonprofit organizations to work collaboratively on mutually interesting and uh, engaging projects so uh, all around it seemed to be the right thing to do i mean publishing has always been a cultural act disguised as a business and so this is sort of more obviously making it into a cultural expression as opposed to a a full-throated business
3: so tell us a little bit martin about what that means to you because I know that you could be in publishing just to make money. I realize it's harder than maybe it used to be, but I think people still do it. And yet, obviously, this is a mission for, for a better world. What What is the mission of Lantern?
1: Well, as some wag once said, the only way to make a small fortune in publishing is to start with a large fortune. And uh, I think most people who've ever gone into publishing, the only way that they've made any money is by selling the, the company to somebody else who's an even bigger sucker than they are when it comes to thinking that there is wealth, <laughs> wealth in publishing. Uh, but the reason why there is this cynical carapace on many publishers is because we actually spend all our times producing books that we feel that uh, people should read. And uh, unfortunately, not every book that everybody publishes is a best- bestseller. And we have to armor ourselves against that recognition that uh, book selling is a, very, um, is a very difficult business to be in. But really, uh, for a publisher such as ours, which has made a particular des- uh, dedication towards uh, veganism and animal rights, as well as other areas of interest that we have, it is about communicating in, as I said before, that most intimate and persuasive of ways. Unlike public meetings, for instance, when you are being addressed by one person and you're standing in a crowd or even a documentary film, which you may see in a a theater or elsewhere, book reading is the fundamental private experience. And unlike many other media, you you have that word, those words going in the back of your head, which are uh, unmediated by anybody else, but your own voice and the author's voice persuading you of a story, of an idea, of a, a vision. And I think that's probably why people hold the currency of books so highly uh, as a means of persuading people, because they do have that intimacy and they do have that personal experience uh, attached to them, which makes them maybe very dangerous in some ways, but also very powerful in a positive way for bringing about change. So that's why we do it. That's why uh, I think words matter, books matter. That's why I think reading matters. And uh, judging by how many people have been influenced by reading uh, in the vegan animal rights movements, then I think it still holds true that books are important for our world and for changing minds.
3: They are, and yours are, and this one is Vegan Voices, Essays from Inspiring change Makers." So, Jean, I know that one of your interests is in solutionary actions, solutionary practices, tell us what that means in real life.
2: Yeah, no, as an animal activist, you know, I spent many years exposing and challenging and railing against the abuses of the factory farming system. And I think we still need to raise awareness and talk about the problems with our current animal agriculture approach. But ultimately, we need to come up with solutions to replace it. And so in recent years, I've been spending a lot of time trying to find out what those solutions could look like. And I've visited urban farms that are growing food in neighborhoods where there is a lack of access to fresh produce, for example. And I think these are really good examples of uh, creating opportunities, uh, creating health and wellness in areas that have generally suffered uh, from from a lack of those. Uh, And there's an, an urban farmer in Los Angeles who says, growing your own food is like printing your own money. And it really speaks to how this is empowering and it is, it is nourishing and and, and not only physically, but also emotionally, you know, you feel good when you accomplish things and you're able to grow and support yourself and, and become resilient and eat your own food. There's also a teacher in New York city uh, named Steve Ritz, who has a group called green Bronx machine that is teaching kids, how to grow plants and how to grow food. And you know, he's also growing hope, he says, you know, among his students. So I think empowering folks through access to and production of food in urban areas, there's a lot of potential there. Um, also, you know, today we have lots and lots of land in the U.S. that is in lawns. I saw a, a number somewhere where like 30, there was like 30 million acres of lawns that are irrigated in the U.S we have 10 million acres of produce that is irrigated and growing in the US. Wouldn't it be interesting if a lot of those lawns could instead be used to grow food? And so that gardeners, instead of coming and mowing a lawn and putting down fertilizer or taking the grass clippings away, would actually garden and grow produce. And then the homeowner would get the produce. And and then I could see a whole bartering community in suburbs where you have all these small, urban suburban farms and meaningful jobs where people are actually growing produce and and maybe there's enough where they now start selling it in in urban markets or in suburban markets or you know to certain restaurants. So I think there's a lot of opportunity when we think creatively about the assets in this world like like land for example and and people who want to work and and feel empowered by doing work of of actually growing food as opposed to You know being an exploited worker on a a giant factory farm or a giant produce farm even so i think smaller farms uh community-oriented plant-based agriculture quality food uh for local uh markets is there's a lot of opportunity there And, and those are the types of things i think that we should also start supporting through policies and this could also be tied into hospitals it could be tied into other types of institutions where people live and having an opportunity to actually garden and and which in addition to producing food creates time in nature which is very healing it provides uh, you know uh, some exercise which is also very helpful in healing so so these types of local solutions i think are great and uh oftentimes when i raise these these ideas people say well you can't scale it and my response to that is we don't necessarily need to scale it into a big operation you can scale production replication. So instead of having one giant farm you have many small farms and some of these could even be in people's yards. So I'm seeing a lot of that happening and it's very inspiring and I think it could be a significant part of the solution. During World War II um, something like 40% of the produce uh, grown in the U.S. came from Victory Gardens and that was ramped up within a couple of years. So if we invested in urban, suburban, plant-based agriculture and managing land in a way that is not just lawns, a lot of potential and and there's food forests. So those are the types of things that I get very excited about and I'm seeing examples of this all over the country. And and frankly, they've been happening all around the world too for thousands of years. Uh, And it's, I think just a matter of, you know, returning to what, what makes sense.
3: That, that is exciting. And I love what you said about printing money. When my daughter and her husband got their, their condo in upper Manhattan that had a yard, they realized they could grow food. And because my son-in-law likes to keep track of things, he kept track of how much money they saved. And in a single season, he estimated it was
2: $900.
3: I mean, that's, that's a lot of money for yeah. having fun and getting exercise.
2: And being outside in nature, it's a win-win, win-win, win-win across the board.
3: Oh, we love winning. So, Joanne, you have a winner here in this book. And you've mentioned some of the essays that I think are special to you. But can you just come up with one or two, there's usually a runner-up, that you just think are so interesting, so unique, that you're just tickled pink it's included in this book?
4: Yeah, There's one writer who a lot of people don't know and I included her because she represents all the tireless work that's being done at the grassroots level and her name is Lynn Sylvan. She runs the Eugene Veg Education Network in Eugene, Oregon and she and her husband they're retired and they decided they wanted to devote devote their lives to creating a better world and to promote veganism and I'm sure many advocates at times we feel perhaps depressed or we feel like we're not doing enough or why aren't things happening more quickly? Why, why, why aren't more people becoming vegan right away? And I once was speaking to her about sometimes having those sort of feelings. And then when I received her essay, she had this wonderful, wonderful uh, paragraph. If I, I hope there's time for me to just read it quickly. There and, is. Her essay is titled, Beyond Joy, and Lynn says the following, quote, Any time is a good time to become vegan. Just gather new information from reliable sources, get over any skepticism, and redirect your thinking towards the greater good. Don't be skewed by long-term habits and knee-jerk resistance. It's okay not to be perfect, as long as we allow compassion to be continuously moving us forward to making better decisions. New understandings might be scary at first, but they are powerful and unrelenting, and yes, joyful. It's exciting to be the revisionist in our own life. Whose life are we better able to revise than our own? It's been said, the difference between who you are and who you want to be is what you do. Whenever we see things and think to ourselves, someone else should do something about that. Why not be that someone? Step up and do it, unquote. So I just love her positive energy
3: and the encouragement that she sends out to the reader. Oh, she's so motivational. Gosh, that's a beautiful paragraph. That is really wonderful. So I love her title, Beyond Joy. And we so often think, particularly in the animal rights movement, there is so much suffering. There is so much death. Oh, you were looking at the death. Look over here. There's more suffering. And she says, beyond joy. So I would love to just hear from each of of you, Joanne, Martin, and, and Jean, where do you find joy? Where do you find joy in your life today, and how does it play a role in your effectiveness? Joanne? I find joy in being connected
4: to to all the wonderful people who are part of this movement, like all of you, and just feeling that unifying spirit that, that all of us are making a difference. We're doing the right thing, and that's incredibly empowering and uplifting to feel connected on this mission.
3: Martin?
1: Gosh, where do I find joy? Uh, well, I, I, you know, right now I'm finding joy in shalane Flanagan's effort to run six marathons in some, I know, crazy period of time. And right now, in under three hours, and she's doing phenomenally well. Jean will know what I'm talking about there since Jean is a distance runner and an Man triathlete. Uh, she is just a remarkable, remarkable person. So that's where I'm finding joy. Uh, I'm finding a lot of encouragement and inspiration from the climate activists uh, that are involved right now, uh, not just Greta Thunberg, of course, who is a vegan, but many others, including Vanessa Nakate and uh, a Genesis Butler and a whole range of this new generation, this uh, Generation Z that is, is speaking truth to power and stepping up where generations above them, including mine, failed. So I'm finding hope and energy from there.
2: Nice. Gene? Yeah, I also find joy in seeing good activists, people stepping up and trying to make a difference in the world. And so this is happening in communities, in organizations, even sometimes in businesses. So when folks are stepping up, that gives me a lot of in, in encouragement and inspiration. And personally, I like getting in nature, just being in beautiful spaces. And uh, recently, my girlfriend and I have been spending a lot of time in the woods, sometimes finding edible mushrooms. And that's a pretty joyful experience, too.
3: Yes, I saw a picture you posted with a mushroom that was bigger than your head.
2: There's these giant puffballs we recently found. But earlier this year, we found some amazing A chicken of the woods, which they call them chicken of the woods because they're very meaty. They're like chicken and they're amazing. And we found a lot of those this year.
3: What's a safe way to learn how to be a mushroom hunter?
2: Well, thankfully, my girlfriend Suzanne knows that better than I do. And, you know, she's joined a local mycology association. And, you know, it's really talking to people and learning from folks who have done this and are aware of what mushrooms are edible. And what we tend to do is to eat the ones that do not have any lookalikes that are potentially poisonous. There are some mushrooms that are fairly unique and if you find those and you know they're edible and there's not a poisonous lookalike, it, you know, we found that to work work well for us.
3: I'm finding so many people recently, I think kind of post-covid that, that are getting into either mushrooms, and there's a, a documentary I think on Netflix. Do you know the name of that?
2: Fantastic Fungi.
3: Yes, that so many people are talking about. And then other people are doing bird watching. My, my stepdaughter in, in Toronto was doing bird watching, and so many people are talking about binoculars and things that people weren't talking about two years ago. It's interesting.
2: It's paying attention and respecting and appreciating what's around us, right? I think that's a big part of it and uh, the thing about mushrooms that are really interesting is how they connect life under the soil you know you've possibly heard about how trees communicate with each other they share nutrients a lot of that is through the mycelium network under the earth and mushrooms are also kind of having their day in terms of the science there are actually more mushroom the, the mushroom kingdom is bigger in terms of the number of species than the animal kingdom or the plant kingdom but it really isn't taught in universities very much so there's now starting to be a recognition of the importance of mushrooms in nature and also in us. They're in our microbiome, for example. So you know, the mycelium network uh, helps connect life on earth.
3: Wow, that's cool. You even gave me some joy and I didn't know I was interested in mushrooms. So there you go. So in our last minute and a half, Joanne, let us know your dream for Vegan Voices and how we can help you reach it.
4: Oh, gosh, I guess just to have more and more people read the book and for people to become inspired and also become their, their own version of, of a vegan advocate and, and a powerful vegan voice, just so that the message gets out there and, and people celebrate that there's a way to a more compassionate kind of world. And that's basically it. And I want to thank Martin so much for making the book possible. It's been a wonderful journey. And Brian, Normoyle has has just been fantastic. And I can't thank
3: you enough, Martin.
1: You're very welcome.
3: Well, Joanne, you have had so much energy. I I know a little bit about what it's like to get out there with a book, and you have been absolutely tireless, and uh, you're not going to quit until this book is on certainly every vegan's bookshelf, and uh, hopefully we'll go on the holiday gifting list to people who aren't yet vegan and need to hear some vegan voices. So finally, 30 seconds, Jean, have you got anybody new at Farm Sanctuary?
2: You know, um, Pietro is a calf that came in not too long ago. Oftentimes we get young male calves from the dairy industry. So so that's where he came from. But yes, so- uh,
3: well, blessings to Pietro. May he have a wonderful, wonderful life ahead. And thanks to all my guests today. The book is Vegan Voices. Thanks to Unity Online Radio and to Louie, our wonderful engineer and to everybody listening. God bless you. Eat
1: Hey, it's Radley Valentine. Join me for a brand new way of connecting with your angels on my new podcast, The Angel Tarot Show. Each week, you'll meet your angelic guides and guardians and find new ways to unlock unconditional love, tune into your intuitive abilities, and create the joy-filled life that, well you've always wanted. Plus, you'll get a useful and timely energetic weather report, bringing you guidance for the coming week. Tap into the healing, hope, and guidance that's all around you on the Angel Tarot Show, exclusively on MindBodySpirit.fm.